Hello and welcome back to the Blusher Boys podcast. BlusherBoys.com is your home for all things Detroit Tigers baseball on the SB Nation platform. I'm your host Brandon Day. Um, we're going to try something a little different tonight. Um, my normal partner in crime, my co-host Ashley McLennan, I would say is away on assignment, but with Ashley it would be more like assignments. But um, she's not going to be joining us tonight. We're just going to do like a quick little recap some of the some of the week's news. Um, We've got you know a little bit of discussion about award season, which is well underway. Um, the Cy Young Awards were announced on Wednesday, and we'll talk about that just briefly. Uh, I'm just going to hit on some of these things, um, kind of kind of catch you up to date with some of what's been going on. Um, there hasn't been a whole lot of Tigers news. Um, there were some quotes from Alavila that you know we spent <laughs> a good deal of time arguing over um, on the site over the past week. But beyond that, there hasn't been a lot of news. Um, there's a little bit from the Arizona Fall League. Um, Daniel Norris is still out in Japan with the MLB Stars team playing the Japanese Stars in some exhibition games um, and just getting some work in. Um, with the Winter Leagues in the Dominican, um, Mexico, Venezuela are all still underway, um, so those things are going on. But um, mainly, I'm just going to kind of introduce some of those topics, um, kind of catch up to date on what's been going on, and then I'm going to throw this to an interview I did um, last Thursday with Emily Walden of The Athletic. Um, Many of you know, as we've had Emily on the show before, um, Emily um, used to write for Bless You Boys. Um, she also wrote for 2080 Baseball and quite a few other prospect sites. Um, she covers the minor league system for the Tigers and quite a few other teams um, for the Athletic. And she was just out in Arizona to take a look at the prospects out in the Arizona Fall League who are out there working. Um, that season is going to be wrapping up shortly. Um, but yeah, so we'll throw it to her. Um, I'm just going to kind of hit on a few things. And then we'll get you that interview, and hopefully um, sometime in the next week or so, um, we'll get back with a regular episode as well and start talking a little bit more about the postseason, or I'm sorry, the offseason. Um, I've got a few thoughts, which I will also offer on Mr. Vila's comments, and yep, then we'll just toss it over to Emily. So, um, the American League Cy Young Award contest today um, came down to Blake Snell of the Tampa Bay Rays and Justin Verlander of the Houston Astros. And once again, um, Justin Verlander's hopes for a second Cy Young Award um, flamed out in Tampa. Um, he famously lost to David Price um, back in 2012 when Mr. Price was the ace of the Tampa Bay Rays staff. Um, and then, of course, there was the infamous 2016 vote in which Rick Porcello won because Justin Verlander was left off the ballot entirely by two writers from the Tampa Bay area. So it's kind of funny that um, it comes down to Tampa again. Captain, um, obviously Justin Verlander's wife, um, famously kind of uh, kind of popped off on Twitter um, when Justin lost in 2016, um, and was kind of yelling about the Tampa thing as well. And so she was kind of joking tonight on Twitter that um, Justin was watching over her shoulder and wouldn't let her tweet without proofreading. So um, they had some fun with that, um, and of course they just had a new baby, and they posted some pictures um, of Justin with her on Instagram, and it's you know it's pretty obvious you know they're they're in a good place. Um, so if you're a huge Justin Verlander slap like I am, you needn't not be upset. Justin Verlander can you know continues to live very large. Things are going very well. He's got a beautiful baby girl. So on the other side, uh, you know, Blake Snell, you know, had an incredible season. Um, he really, he, he, not to say that he came out of nowhere, um, he was a good prospect, but um, he just put it together in an incredible way this year. 
think he had a 1.89 or 1.90 ERA through 175 innings. You know, just just pitched out of his mind. Um, he also was really good against most of the teams that ended up in the playoffs. Like I think he had the best record of the the, the finalists um, for the Cy Young vote. So you know, th- there's a good argument that it could should have gone to Verlander again. 214 innings to Snell's 175. Um, you know, 40 innings is quite a bit. Um, you know, that's that's basically an extra month of baseball that Verlander threw that Snell didn't have to. Um, it's, you know, various methodologies for, you know, valuing players. Um, we'll, we'll value those innings differently. Uh, I kind of was surprised that, that the writers, you know, didn't didn't do that. Um, you know, the, the differential in ERA wasn't, you know, particularly substantial between Snell and Verlander. And, you know, Verlander had him in FIP, um, you know, far better strikeout, you know, rate and walk rate together. So, you know, it, it is what it is, though. Um, you know, since Verlander won the, you know, his first World Series ring, you know, he's basically got one of everything. And um, so that's just the way it goes. And, you know, maybe he'll have to come out to be motivated next year and in his age 36 season do this again. But you do wonder how many more more seasons like this um, Verlander has in him. It's It's been pretty incredible um, just to see the resurgence. You know, basically 2016, 2017, 2018, he's been... Right back to you know one of the top you know two or three pitchers in in baseball, if not the best cumulatively over that time. So um, things are good there. Um, earlier in the week we had the Manager of the Year awards, but Snedker won for the from the Atlanta Braves in the National League, um, which you know maybe you could have gotten Craig Council, but I didn't really have much beef with that. Um, in the American League, Bob Melvin of the Oakland Athletics won his third Manager of the Year award, and I thought that was pretty interesting. You had, you know, you had two finalists besides, you know, besides Melvin that were, you know, Kevin Cash with the Tampa Bay Rays, and you had Alex Cora, who's the rookie manager of the Boston Red Sox. Um, you know, on the one hand, you've got a guy who won, you know, took a very good team, obviously, and a team that added, you know, J.D. Martinez, and then, you know, Nathan Eovaldi and a few other pieces um, to get, you know, to, to make their World Series run. But to win that, you know, win the World Series in your rookie rookie year as a manager would seem to be pretty good and on the other side you know if you're looking at sort of the scrappy underdog you know Kevin Cash's Rays won I believe 90 games despite trading away a lot of talent in the middle of the season um, which is you know remarkable remarkable what the Rays did really um, that you know they did a lot of innovative or, or things that you just hate um, depending on your perspective this year by using you know openers you know having full bullpen games you know, the front office in Tampa Bay, you know, is is really progressive and they have to be because their, you know, their owner doesn't spend, which is frustrating. And you just wonder when that situation is going to be going to be alleviated. Um, we'll see if the new stadium does what's promised. You can still wonder if there just isn't the fan base there for that. But, you know, the front office themselves, under the circumstances that they've had, they've they've been pretty innovative, you know, all along um, from the Andrew Friedman Farhan Zaidi days till now, um, they just kind of keep getting it done. And Kevin Cash is the one who has to communicate that to the players. And the coordination and planning to use his pitching staff the way he did it here, you know, was was beyond anything, you know, anyone else has, has tried. You know, it's pretty incredible that they were able to pull it off as well as they could just, you know, just logistically, you know, having the arms ready, you know, having guys healthy, you know, getting the matchups when they wanted them that consistently. So, um, you know, I kind of would have gone that way or to Cora. You know, Bob Melvin is a great manager, one of the best managers in the game for a long time now. 
um, you know, and has you know enjoyed a, a brilliant partnership with the front office out in, in Oakland. So nothing derogatory toward Bob Melvin. Um, it just seemed like that he was he was a sort of strange middle of the road candidate to win. You know, his team did make you know make the postseason, but yeah, I don't know. I was just surprised. I guess in the end. Um, kind of, kind of felt like maybe they didn't want to give it to Kevin Cash because so many, uh, so many baseball writers and, you know, and a lot of people who followed the game for a long time just don't like what the Rays are doing in general and why that didn't throw it to Alex Cora. I assume it's just because the, you know, the Red Sox just look like a juggernaut that almost any of us could just put the pedal to the floor of and, and drive. And I'm not sure that that's the case, but, um, but I'm assuming that's, that's kind of the thinking on the matter. Um, earlier in the week, you know, Ronald Acuna Jr. of the Braves, Took home the National League Rookie of the Year award over Juan Soto um, of the Washington Nationals. Uh, those are, you know, two superb young players. You know, Cunha Jr. is much more well-rounded. You know, has the speed, um, better defender. But Juan Soto was 19 years old and just absolutely mashed in the major leagues this year, and that was uh, that was pretty wild to see. So you probably could have gone either way with those, but I think they got it right, and I think in the long haul. Acuna Jr. is going to look like the better player, and it's going to make sense even more probably in in retrospect. So, but we'll have to see how uh, we'll have to see how it shakes out because man, Juan Soto was incredible, and you know, with the Nationals, you know, possibly losing Bryce Harper, we'll just we'll just have to see how it goes. It's just it's remarkable that Mike Rizzo, the the general manager and his staff over there, have you know Victor Robles, who might be the best prospect in baseball, who are, they're going to be able to plug into the outfield sometime next year. Um, they've got Juan Soto. They still have Adam Eaton. You know, they, that's a team that could lose Bryce Harper and reinvest that money elsewhere and potentially get better. So we'll just have to see how that plays out. But, um, but you know, Juan Soto is, is a force. Um, in the American League, you know, I thought Shohei Otani was, was just a lock. The second-place candidate, Miguel Andujar of the New York Yankees, you know, had, had a great year for a rookie, um, you know, was very impressive at the plate. But he wasn't, you know, one of the elite hitters in the game, um, and his defense is, is substandard. And on the other hand, you have a player, you know, doing something completely unprecedented in the modern game. Um, you know, I mean, this is basically an elite player uh, on both sides of the ball. You know, you, you can certainly argue that he's got more to prove with the bat, and obviously he's injured. I um, mean, and, you know, with the UCL issue, is going to not pitch probably any time next year. But um, but what we saw, you know, for you know a couple months was was just the most incredible thing. You know, I think most of us have seen in baseball in a very very long time. You know, you just you just don't see a two way player anywhere near that caliber. So and then to watch him come over, you know, from Japan at age 22, blend right in. Um, you know, with all the challenges of getting used to you know dealing with the media here, um, those obligations, and living here at the same time. Uh, you know, the, the vastly different demands that travel in Major League Baseball puts on you than it would in Japan. Um, there was there was just a lot going on that he fought through. And then, you know, the injury on top of it. And then to come back and hit and still, you know, be a very effective, you know, above average hitter at the plate was just, just you know, just crazy. So I think you had to, I think you had to go Otani. I mean, it's just, you know, pretty hard to argue unless someone else just had, you know, one of the great seasons of all time for a rookie that, um, that you're going to take him down. Um, it's interesting seeing how, you know, who got it right with Otani before the season in terms of, you know, scouting grades. Um, you know, you know, you look at a place like Fangraphs, I think, you know, Baseball Prospectus, probably Baseball America, like all those places, like, you know, you could see this coming. Um, you know, you, you've, even if you've got like an amazing prospect like Vladimir Guerrero Jr., you know, like a 70 grade prospect, which you don't, don't see every day, 
you know, Otani is two 70 grade prospects in a sense. Maybe not, maybe not 70, but at least, you know, two 60, 65s, you know, somewhere in there. Um, and, you know, that's, there's just nothing like that. And then, you know, he just came out and lived up to it, um, you know, as long as his elbow would let him. So we'll wish, uh, we'll wish a lot of healing to Mr. Otani because, man, he was fun. It was just, it was just an incredibly fun thing to see him doing what he did the first half of the season and just dominating on the mound, going out there, you know, mashing at the plate. Um, you know, the Angels, you know, hopes were, were dashed fairly early this year, but um, but he provided them with a heck of a lot of entertainment. That was that was quite the show. So the most valuable player awards will be announced um, on Thursday, and you know we'll just kind of have to see how it plays out there. I saw some people actually still kind of complaining that um, JD Martinez hadn't you know had, had been snubbed or whatever, but um, I, I just never really I just never really bought into that argument. Um, you know it's pretty hard pretty hard for a dh to be the most valuable player um what he did over there was incredible you could probably give him extra credit for being a coach but um but yeah you don't get credit for being a coach and you know it's just we'll just have to kind of see how how the voters play this out um you know mike trout is still the best player in baseball like you would say he is the best player in baseball and one season does not change that but i think this is the year mookie bets is at least close enough that you can go mookie bets and um and because, you know, his team, you know, won the World Series, there's an extra kicker for that. Um, and, and just getting close enough that the, the reign of terror over the American League most valuable player that is Mike Trout might actually miss out, um, you know, just, just for this one year. If I had to pick one, one of the two players to have on my team, I'm still, still taking Mike Trout, I think, at this point. Um, in the National League, I didn't really, I wasn't really going to go with Javi Baez, although he was incredible. I still, I still kind of think it's, it's Nolan Arenado. Um, but I feel like the momentum is, is on Christian Yelich's side, um, with the Milwaukee Brewers. Um, but I just, you know, it's hard to say picking, picking those arguments apart when you don't watch the national league all the time, um, and see how guys are regarded, um, when you don't see everything that other, other, you know, baseball writers see, um, it's, it's, it's really hard to know where they're going to go with that one. So. I won't be surprised, really, in in any regard. Um, it's just that you know, Arenado's been doing it, doing it longer. It kind of feels like, you know, he's he's sort of due. So we'll see. Uh, we'll see if they feel the same way. You know, to switch it over to talking about the Tigers, there just really hasn't been a whole lot, a whole lot to say. Um, you know, there haven't really been too many rumors yet. We're just kind of getting going. But um, but the one thing that, that was on everybody's on everybody's mind over the last week was some comments that Al Avila made out at the general managers managers meetings, um, in which he was basically you know he was basically indicating that the team isn't going to be spending you know much in free agency this off season. Um, he he described a, a kind of a vague timetable to where you know until just um, Jordan Zimmerman's contract is off the books after the 2020 season. You know, the, the Tigers' payroll is probably just a little too burdensome, you know, some, to, to really go out and pursue free agents. And, you know, we had a lot of arguments on the site about this. Um, and, you know, there's there's all sorts of reasonably differing perspectives. But the perspective it's, that's... The, the one that I think is a bit insidious is the idea that the Tigers aren't spending today and that they're saving, you know, that they're somehow going to save this money and use that, you know, for some later date when the ti- when you know... The prospects all come of age, and the farm, you know, produces all this talent, and we, you know, we turn out this winner real quick, and then you pump all this free agent money that they've been what socking away under, you know, Chris Illich's mattress over the past, you know, in 2019 and say in 2020, and just putting this away for a rainy day. Um, 
you know, it, it just doesn't really work like that. And um, there's so many good reasons for the Tigers to go out and pursue some of the mid-tier free agents, at least one or two, um, and, and try to find themselves some, some real assets that they can you know, put on the field um, in the first half of a season and then turn around and trade um, at, the, at the deadline in July or, or beyond, as we saw with, with Justin Verlander. Because the Tiger farm system is good. I think we can I think we can fairly say that at this point. The Tiger Farm system is good. We're not really at the point though where you can call it some kind of a juggernaut though. Um, you know, the Tigers still, you know, despite having Daz Cameron and Isaac Parades who have finally kind of shot up, you know, into sort of the mid fifties on quite a few um of the of the prospect lists, the top one hundreds that are gonna be out there. Um, you know, he's they're gonna be up there in you know, on in baseball prospectus, top one hundred. They're already around 50th, um, somewhere in that vicinity on Fangraphs, the board list. Um, they're top 100. So, you know, we do have some good position prospects, but that's still only, you know, two guys. Um, that, you know, there are quite a few guys behind them who are talented. Um, you know, I think the Tigers' depth is, is really a strength at this point. But, you know, and especially in the upper minors, the Tigers do have, you know, a, a pretty decent crop of prospects. And, you know, most of their top pitching prospects as well are already, you know, already at Erie or above. So, you know, you can look toward 2021 as kind of the year when you're going to see, like, a lot of the best talent all kind of coming into the major leagues full-time. Um, maybe even 2020 um, with some of these guys, if we get lucky. Um, you may see, you know, Daz next year in 2019, late in the season. You may see Paredes. Um, you'll probably see Jacob Robson along the way, um, who's a lesser prospect, but still interesting. Um, and maybe we'll even see some of the better pitching prospects. Um, I don't expect Casey Mize to necessarily run all the way to Detroit next season, um, but I suppose it's not impossible. Um, but you look at like Bo Burrows, perhaps, um, and we'll still, you know we're going to see what Spencer Turnbull and Kyle Funkhauser probably have um, at points next year. So you know we're we're at the point where you are seeing some of the the good mid tier talent come in, but the Tigers still aren't in close really to a position where they're just going to you know put you know a ton of talent all on the field all at the same time, especially positionally. Um, you know the the farm still needs some juice in. Um, the Tigers have every reason in the world to you know to try to get a little bit better class of of free agent out there, especially because. A lot of those veteran guys over 30 are getting short-term deals for, you know, probably substantially less than, than they're actually worth um, because teams, you know, just don't want to commit to them long-term. Um, and that, you know, that's something we would kind of like to see the Tigers try to exploit. There's some frustration with, um, you know, with some of Avila's comments, and we'll just have to see how it plays out this offseason. Um, you know, I kind of threw out the suggestion that if the Tigers do decide to trade um, Nicholas Castellanos, um, even if you don't pull some huge return, you're also going to free up, you know, 10 or $11 million that they could possibly use, uh, particularly to spend on a pitcher. Um, you know, we, we've kind of like playfully batted around the Manny Machado, Bryce Harper idea, like, hey, what if the Tigers just, you know, did this and then just try to build around those guys with the farm system we have um, idea. But obviously that's not going to happen. Um, you know, the Tigers aren't... aren't giving any indication that they're going to go out and spend a whole bunch of money this offseason. Um, and I don't think we can probably guilt Chris Illich and, and Alavila into doing so. So, you know, we're going to have to be patient to some degree. But if you move a guy like Castellanos, maybe you do have a little bit of money that they hopefully would, um, if not should, in my opinion, um, you know, spend to try to pick up somebody and to, to overpay for a guy who might be um, might be a tradable asset at the trade deadline. And especially pitchers, you know, like I said, you know, we've, we've joked about Machado, Harper, um, and obviously the Tigers have needs in the middle infield and possibly even a little bit in center field. Um, they could definitely use a, a 
legitimate starting catcher to bump, you know, James McCann to more of a backup role, um, or possibly even a non-tender situation because, you know, he struggled so, so much last season and still, you know, it just isn't the guy behind the plate that we want back there full time guiding a lot of young pitchers. Um, he's, he's just not that guy, quality person, um, obviously works hard. He's not a guy who I would mind having as my backup catcher, um, especially if I have a left-handed starter, because McCann hopefully will bounce back and at least mash lefties again in the years to come. Um, But, you know, as far as the Tigers, it's probably time to move on there as well. Um, But, you know, pitchers are where you're you're likeliest to get the biggest return. And, you know, we've talked about some guys like Drew Pomerantz, um, Tyson Ross, guys who are going to look for, you know, bounce-back deals after a rough season. Um, I've got a piece coming out shortly um, on possibly, you know, an idea to trade for Sonny Gray from the Yankees. Um, that one has some some issues with it. Um, it's not as clean cut as just, you know, purchasing a guy's, uh, you know, free agent years, you know, and, and just plugging him in and, you know, hoping he does well and you could flip him at the deadline. There's a little more complexity to the Gray situation in terms of what you'd have to get up, give up to get him. But, um, but, you know, there, there are ideas like that. You could sign, you know, we would, I'm sure everybody would love for us to sign Garrett Richards, you know, to a two-year deal. Um, it might be good for Garrett Richards to sign up with a team that'll give him two years, which a lot of teams will, but not ask him to pitch next season um, and let him fully heal um, from the UCL surgery um, that he had this season. Um, you know, if he goes to a contender, which, you know, you could see a player wanting to do, and there will certainly be um, plenty of good teams out there willing to spend a good chunk of money to have a guy like Garrett Richards, even if they don't really expect to get much out of him um, until 2020. And so the competition is going to be fierce there. But, um, but you know, coming to, come to Detroit, rehab, you know, maybe throw a few innings late in the season, and then you come out in 2020 and you're with a club that you, you know, can, can pretty much guarantee is going to trade you if you have a good, you know, a good first half and you're in a park that's... and probably still a division that are, you know, that are pretty friendly to you. So, you know, th- there are, there are things you can pitch to, to a free agent. Um, you know, Detroit is a good place for a guy to come and try to rebound, um, starting pitcher, especially, um, we saw that, you know, Mike Fairs, you know, took pretty good advantage of that last season. Um, you know, if you can get someone who's got a little bit more pop than, than Mike fires and kind of a little more of the kind of, you know, sabermetric values that teams are looking for in terms of strikeouts, you know, to walk ratio, um, looking for guys with velocity and nasty breaking balls, things that, you know, fires manages to, to live largely without, um, you know, there's just a chance of getting a much better return at the deadline and the Tigers could use, you know, could use more good prospects. They definitely still have some weaknesses in the farm system. And even if you can't pull, you know, that blue chip prospect out of someone and, you know, you have to hopefully trade and develop for a guy like that. Um, you know, and the Tigers are going to pick high again in 2019. Even if, you know, you can't pull too many more guys like that, if you've got enough, you know, depth in your farm system, if you've got enough talent coming up, you know, you can spend the free agent money because you've got cost-controlled players all over the field. Um, you know, you have a deep farm system that, that you can then trade from. Um, that's another thing maybe the Tigers should pursue this, you know, this offseason. Um, a lot of the better teams out there have have made you know made some hay by trading their depth for guys that only had one or two years remaining at team control, and a rebuilding team you know was willing to deal deal them away for you know solid but but nothing special prospects, and that's something the Tigers should be looking to do as well. Um, you know, just just sitting around the next two years drafting, and kind of you know hoping that everyone kind of develops and all comes into the major leagues at the same time isn't isn't a plan. Um, it's it's just it's just not you know it's not aggressive enough it's 
sitting back and just kind of hoping things work out for you. Um, we haven't seen teams succeed that way. We've seen teams succeed by being aggressive. Um, we've also seen, seen teams, you know, blow themselves out of the water. Like, you know, obviously like the Mariners, you know, have made a million trades, spent a lot of money and still have had, you know, nothing to show for it. And perhaps, you know, a team like that was too aggressive. But, um, but you know, the Tigers need to take a long look at their farm system and see who they really think is, is worth hanging on to and see if they can turn some of the other guys, you know, into any kind of major league talent that might be tradable. Um, that's another way they could keep their payroll down and still manage to sort of, you know, massage the roster um, to a, at least a moderately better place the next two years um, while, they're, while they're kind of waiting for their better prospects to come up. So that's what we would like to see. Um, you know, we'll just have to see what, what develops you know, this off season, you know, Avila made those comments, but you know, you just never know. You just never know what opportunities might come. Um, you know, whether he, you know, whether he really meant to uh, put it so bluntly as, Hey, we're not going to spend any money. Um, which is kind of how it sounded to most of us. Um, you know, maybe, maybe that wasn't quite what he intended as well. So, you know, we'll be covering that. We've, you know, we've got a few more ideas I know coming as far as, um, you know, players, the Tigers could target and free agency, and we'll just kind of keep looking for the rumors to start kicking in here. Um, the Rule 5 draft is, is coming up not too far distant future. Um, winter meetings won't be too far away. And so we should start hearing at least at least hints of ideas. Um, and, you know, and from that point on, that'll probably drive most of the coverage, um, you know, toward the end of the year. So those are kind of the, you know, kind of where we're at in the offseason. Right now, you know, as far as what's still going on, you know, you've still got the Arizona Fall League that's about to wrap up. And I'm going to throw you shortly to our interview with Emily Walden, um, where we will discuss that very thing. Um, we'll talk about Daz Cameron, who is doing very well out in the desert. Um, we'll talk about little Danny Woodrow, who at 5'10", 175 pounds, is... Let me, let me look this up for you, because he, he was second in batting average in the Eastern League, I believe, this, this season. And right now he's out there hitting 371 with an OBP of 420 and an OPS of 807. <laughs> So Danny Woodrow continues to hit, um, you know, there's just, there's just no power there. And, um, it, it, it still remains to be seen if he can, you know, can really turn himself into a, what we would think of more as a real prospect, um, by, by at least, you know, driving the ball a little bit more effectively. Um, but you know, the man has speed, he's a good defender and he keeps hitting. So he might, might be someone to keep an eye on in the Jacob, Jacob Robson vein, um, in 2019. And as far as Jake Rogers goes, it's, it's been a bit of a rough go out there, um, He's not striking out, you know, so much necessarily. Um, his strikeout rate, I think, is right around 25%, which is, you know, pretty pretty much where it always is. But um, average is still terrible. Um, and he had a couple months like that early this season with Erie in April and especially May, where you know, just it wasn't that he was striking out like some ludicrous amount, but just nothing was falling in. Um, so he, he's having a bit of a rough go out there, and we'll talk to Emily about that. Um, Jake, as well as some of his coaches, um, had some thoughts on that subject. And actually, Emily has an article up on The Athletic right now, um, which is an interview with um, with Jake Rogers. And obviously, the inter um, it requires a subscription on The Athletic. But I can tell you, it's been well worth it, not just for the Tigers' coverage, but because of the, the coverage of the entire major leagues. Um, if you're a big sports fan in general, um, it goes well beyond that. The coverage of hockey and football all gets good reviews from everybody I know. Um, so you should probably get interested and at least think about checking that out. Um, on the pitching side, Gregory Soto is down there. Um, 
in the Arizona Fall League, in the, and all these guys are playing for the Mesa Solar Sox. If you're interested in kind of um, taking a look at their stats and seeing what they've been up to, um, you could find that on the Winter League's um, link through MLB.com. But um, yeah, Gregory Soto, uh, hard-throwing lefty who is at Lakeland this year, um, we, you know, a player that a lot of people really like is probably a future reliever. You know, big-time power fastball, um, killer kind of 11-5 to slurvish breaking ball. Um, still has his control problems, and he has walked 11 batters in 25 innings out there, but he also has a 2.88 ERA um, with 19 strikeouts and a 1.16 whip, and so he's going to continue to be kind of a, a tantalizing player um, that the Tigers are going to have to, you know, kind of, well, they're going to have to make a 40-man decision again because the Rule 5 draft is, is coming up, but I would assume that Gregory Soto is, is going to be around as well as Eduardo Jimenez, who... Um, was also a closer at Lakeland this season, also at Lakeland, and he has a 1-3-2 ERA out in Arizona um, in 13 and two-thirds innings of work um, with 12 strikeouts to two walks, so he's been doing really well. Um, Sandy Bias has kind of struggled out there. He's, you know, just just hasn't, just really hasn't quite seemed right since they converted him to a relief role. Um, we'll just have to see if he can pull it together out there. John Schreiber had a couple rough outings, um, but has also pitched pretty well at times out there. Um, he's kind of the low three-quarters slot, almost sidearm guy who was, um, you know, he closed for Erie this year, um, was really, really effective. Anyway, you don't see guys throwing quite this hard from this arm slot that often, even though he's only kind of topping out at like 92 um, with his fastball. It's it's a pretty lively 92 from, uh, from such a low arm slot. Um, and we will talk to Emily Walden about some of these guys, and I will throw you over there right, right now. Um, please enjoy this interview. And we will be back with um, with a regular episode of the BYB podcast before too long. Thank you very much. Good night. Okay, welcome back. We've got form actually currently the featured prospect writer for the Athletic Detroit, as well as covering uh, quite a bit of other prospect news around the league for the Athletic. Miss Emily Walden. Emily, how's it going? It's going well. How are you? Hey, pretty good. Great to hear your voice. Yes, it's so good to be back. I'm a little, uh, little bitter about being back in this Michigan cold after being out in Arizona, but you know, you I, deal with it and life goes on. I know we we adapt so fast when we're in nice weather. And uh, man, you know, I I was I was telling you the other day, like I just I really love Phoenix. Um, I've only been there a couple times, but oh, there's just something about there's something about the desert that really does kind of work for me. It uh, it lures me so. Yep, I can I can appreciate being there and all this nice weather and climbing around Red Rocks and watching baseball in the middle of November and then you come back to Michigan. Yep, you know. It's it's a little bit tricky, honestly. I was sitting at one of the ballparks a couple of days before I flew back home and I thought I have to go back to Michigan soon and I'm of course getting weather updates from my mom <laughs> talking about the threat of snow and I, I asked her, I said, Mom, do you want me to come home? Are you, are you wanting me to stay here? Because your weather updates are not helping you very much. So we, all, we all know winter eventually comes to an end and so we just have to sort of mentally brace for it. Yeah, but you kind of had to give her the, uh, I'm kind of considering changing everything in my life and moving to Arizona, Mom. I uh, just, just wanted to let you know I'm just thinking about it. <laughs> yeah, but the thought that crossed my mind, that's true. <laughs> yep. Yep. This is, you know, the problem is, though, you know, I'm just too, I'm too used to winter, you know, at Christmas, you know, too used to that cold, biting football weather at, at Thanksgiving. You know, this is the time of year where it actually, it kind of feels normal to me to be, to be in Michigan. And, you know, it's not till like January, I really start to go crazy. <laughs> that's what I get. Yeah, that, ah. that really is the hardest part of the year, because I'm with you in regards to 
I love snow on Christmas. I'm very nostalgic when it comes to that. And I love football weather. I love, you know, hoodies and sweaters and all that kind of stuff. But, yeah, I agree. It's, it's around January where we all start to kind of scratch our heads and say, why don't we still live here? But yeah. <laughs> It's a, it's a tough time of year, that's for sure. Yeah, especially for all of us baseball fanatics, too. You know, like, baseball never ends, but um, but this is the time of year where, you know, yeah, like, the World Series has been over a couple weeks, and I start I start feeling a little sad. But, of course, baseball is still going on, as you saw. So, yeah, you know, you were out in the Arizona Fall League. Um, what, um, you know, what what was that like for you? This is your, what, second time going, going there? Your third? Yeah, this is my second. Last year was my first time out there and it was kind of a last minute trip um so unfortunately i didn't get to go for as long as i was wanting to so this this year was really my first extended visit and so i got to see you know some of the the names that i write about regularly during the regular season so it was it was a cool experience got to see some of the the top names in the game right now and that that made it really really fun for sure Awesome. Yeah. I mean, there's, um, there's, you know, beyond the Tigers, there's just so many interesting players out there right now from, yeah, obviously the big star who's, you know, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. But you also got like, you know, guys like Forrest Whitley. We were talking about Peter Alonzo and, uh, oh, who, you know, Boba Shett, like people like that out there. Right. So yeah, you, you're seeing a lot of talent on display. Yeah. They, there were a lot of the names that kind of get a little bit overshadowed by some of the bigger names during the regular season. And so one of my favorite things about the Fall League is it gives almost like an equal platform to all these guys who come out there. And one of the things that really impressed me the most was the fact that there was such good chemistry among the players. Obviously, a lot of these guys face each other during the regular season. Um, some of them, you know, grew up together. Some of them played together in college. And then other ones were just, you know, they played against each other. So it's kind of a chance to do that big sort of a family reunion type of a, a layout and these guys get to become teammates and um, you know pick each other's brains and really just respect the the talent that they all have and I think the fact that it wasn't a thing of you know jealousy it was it was a mutual admiration around the whole league for all of these guys looking at each other and seeing what what those talents are and instead of saying oh I wish that was me saying what can I learn from him? <laughs> How can I take from his example and make myself better as a player? So it was a really cool thing to watch those relationships develop. Yeah, I mean, it really does kind of feel like, you know, a, a whole month of like a player's weekend kind of kind of a vibe because it's, you know, you know, for obviously for fans, you know, we're all about our individual team. But, you know, these guys are actually tighter, you know, in a way than I think most people could realize just because they're all, you know, they've been on the same circuit since they were you know, young teenagers, they've, they've all kind of seen each other, known each other, you know, heard the hype about each other, you know, see, seeing each other progress and all that sort of thing. So having them all there, you know, obviously competing against each other, but also, you know, it's, it's sort of, you know, just for fun in a certain sense. So yeah, it must be kind of cool for them to all sort of be reunited out in Arizona and in November and enjoying the weather and working on things together. Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, I spoke with Buddy Reed from the Padres organization and something he said that he really appreciated was the fact that even though there was that friendly competition that it never got, you know, serious. It was more of just a, let's go out and try and beat each other. Let's go out there and, you know, learn from each other and, and just really have some fun. And like I said before, you know, you've got the guys who they obviously want to become better individually, but they're taking those pieces that they're watching from, 
you know, the Vladimir Guerreros and Peter Alonzo's and the Buddy Reeds of the league, and they're saying, okay, what's he doing? Now, how can I apply that to my own journey and my own development? The thing I think that really impressed me a lot as well is the individuality of these players and the fact that they're not trying to be each other. They're trying to be themselves, but they're just trying to become better as an individual player, and that really impressed me a lot. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, and I mean, if if you're trying to, you know, if you're trying to impersonate Vladimir Guerrero Jr., you're probably going to fail. <laughs> like, there's there's some unique, yeah. some unique physical talents out there on display. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I really like. You know, we were talking before we got on, we actually got on the air about you know Vlad Jr. and just how like you know just how invested like the entire scouting community kind of is because he's just such a unicorn as a player that uh, yeah when he gets when he gets hit with a pitch or something everyone kind of is like ah no no Vlad so yeah yeah, yeah it's definitely it's it's one of those talents like you and I were saying it it comes along once in a generation um the fact that. You know, we all so quickly forget the fact that he's not even 20 and he's got so much feel. I mean, you can compare him to his dad all day long because the the comparisons are a bit freakish and almost kind of that mirror image in certain ways. But then you stand them up next to each other and there's still that individuality. You know, these guys, especially I I spoke with Dad's Campbell, you know, the comparison to your father being a former major leaguer there's going to be those comparisons. And I think we're seeing a lot of players right now who draw enough to their dads where that's going to happen. But the maturity of guys like, you know, Vladimir Jr., of Daz Cameron, of Bill Bichette, there's an admiration for what their dads accomplished, but there's also that realization that they are not their dad in reality. And they have to kind of get to that level in their own way, you know, in their own accomplishments and, they have to do it on their own two feet, using their dad as, as an influence, yes, but doing it with their own stamp. And I know Daz, uh, Daz Cameron really did a good job of saying, if if I can accomplish what my dad accomplished, he said that's going to be an incredible thing. But he said, I'm never going to be able to do exactly what he did because I'm not my dad. And he admires him day in and day out. He has so much respect for his dad, but he also says, I'm not Mike. <laughs> I have to do what dad can do. And that, that just shows me such a degree of maturity on his part. Yeah. Oh, that, yep. That is great to hear. And, you know, it, it is really interesting because it just seems, you know, baseball has kind of always been this way to a degree, but there really is kind of a, a lineage thing going on where more and more, you know, former players' sons are, are, you know, playing the game hard, starting at an early age, getting the best instruction, and and teams really, really like knowing that they've got, you know, that they can take a player who's, you know, kind of been been through it, um, you know, if only through their dad's experience to kind of know what to expect and, and how to work. And it's been cool, like, seeing some of the um, some of the little features you've done on Twitter where you had, like, um, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and seniors swing side by side or kind of like look at like Daz and, and Mike Cameron together and um, man there's there's just some some specimens out there <laughs> like you just you kind of you can see where where it comes from on, on some of them obviously Vladdy Jr. is kind of compared to his dad is you know just like this even a little giant compared but um, but yeah it's just a cool thing because there's such a such a long history of like you know and, and baseball is so invested in fathers and sons kind of to begin with so to have so many um, former major league fathers kind of involved with players right now is is this is kind of it's just kind of cool it allows for a lot of neat kind of comparisons to be drawn but yeah of course the players themselves have to have to overcome that as much as it's an advantage it's also can be a burden so 
Oh, absolutely. And um, something Mike Cameron told me um, at the Fall Stars game, he, he went down to watch Dads when he played over that weekend. Um, and he said the thing that he's really proud of with Dads is that Dads understands the challenge of reaching the major league level and that he can't depend fully on his dad's accomplishments to get there. He has to do it on his own, in his own way, in his own timing. And the fact that you have the bloodlines there, I, I firmly believe that bloodlines are beneficial. You know, in the case of Guerrero Jr., you know, having so many similarities to his dad, having that strength at the plate, having that just completely unorthodox swing that, <laughs> you know, can shake the ground when it makes contact. Obviously, that is something that has been carried down from his dad. But at the same time, the bloodlines are good, but they don't make the player. The player has to make the player. The player has to find out who he is at the minor league level. And that identity, the sooner it's discovered, he's going to move forward that much quicker as he figures out what his role is in the game. Yeah. Yep. So yeah, I mean, you can see how it's how it's an advantage and how it how it, it maybe isn't sometimes. Like you, you know, I'm sure like for a guy like Daz Cameron, like he grew up around you know people who understood the game. You know, there was no unlearning he had to do later because he was probably taught to do things you know the right way all along. But yeah, at a certain point, you know, you've you've got to become your own guy. So yeah, that's uh, that's an interesting kind of way to look at uh, what's going on out there in the in the prospect world these days because it does seem like teams are kind of leaning on the um, on the bloodlines a little bit more and really really like to see that even with a guy you know we've talked about Matt Manning whose you know father was an NBA player not a major league player but just that you know that kind of baseline athleticism um, that can really help a guy but who can't rely on it and has to build you know build his own framework on top of that so absolutely and I think in the case of Matt Manning too that's that's an example of the benefit of knowing how to navigate the pressures off the field. Um, obviously, his dad being in basketball can help him grasp the challenge of the athleticism of it. But when you make it to that level of basketball, you have the media interaction and you have interaction with the fans. And Matt had the benefit of watching his dad navigate that whole thing. And so I think when he obviously coming in as the top pick, he had the pressure of the media. He had the pressure of the fans and the, you know, the projections and all of that. And to be able to keep a cool head at this level of baseball, it's, it's a must because the pressure of figuring out who you are as a player and being able to find success in the midst of that, it's, it can be a perfect storm if you're not prepared for it. So even if it's not the same sport per se, if you have that benefit of seeing how to handle that, that pressure aspect, I think it's only going to benefit you more as you're figuring out who you are in the game. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're doing well, you know, you're, you're going to have that, that little extra bit of attention on you. So yeah, being, being able to handle it is, is pretty important. Um, I just like, you know, I just say to all of our listeners, Emily had a really, really good article on, on Matt Manning's development. Um, it was like the beginning of October, but you, you talked to like the coaches who worked with them in high school. Um, that was a, that was a super good piece and just another, just another excellent advertisement for people to sign up for the athletic because the coverage there from yeah Detroit to you know the entire country wide in terms of baseball has been absolutely awesome. Um, you know we've also seen our buddy Max Boltman kind of branch out and do some hockey. 
Um, so he's doing some Red Wings coverage. Um, but yeah, it's it's well worth it. That was a really good piece. And, you know, I kind of had a little bit of interaction with um, with Randy White, who's out at, at Vast Athletics and, and, and Train Matt as well. And um, it's just pretty cool to kind of get to know sort of where they come from and, and how they've kind of seen a player's journey progress like that. So, yeah, that was a really, really cool piece. I was pretty stoked to, to read that, even though I, I had a little bit of a preview from you. But <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's the cool thing about that, I think, was – you know, and, and you and I have talked about this before, that there's so much more to a pitcher than velocity. There's so much more to a pitcher than being able to go out and just, you know, blow everybody away with a fastball. And the, the process that it's been for Matt Manning working with Randy Way and then also Bridget McGinnis, who's one of the trainers at Vast, um, they have really worked to hone in on him as an entire athlete. So every aspect of his athleticism, you know, doing drills with his off-speed pitches, which... Matt told me those drills helped his curveball really kind of get an identity this season um, and really get some improvements in that regard, too. So it's remembering the whole person and not just, you know, let's throw the ball 100 miles an hour. <laughs> it's, you know, there's there's benefits to velocity, but velocity doesn't make the pitcher. So I think being able to embrace all of that and know all the moving parts that's only going to make you more successful more quickly. Yeah, and I thought it was cool that he that he kind of keeps going back there. Um, you know, it seems like a lot of times, you know, players, like when they get to like the next level, they, you know, they'll kind of abandon all the coaching they had and just kind of go on to the next, you know, okay, I'm in this organization now. I'm just going to focus exactly on what they say and leave everybody behind and keep, and keep going like that. But having that perspective of, of people who, you know, know what they're doing, um, know your, you know, your body, your mentality, you know, all that, all that, you know, all that makes a player kind of from that age when you, you know, sort of first started to blossom like Matt did when he was, you know, 16, 17 years old and kind of be able to kind of take that baseline and see how he comes back each year and, and changes and develops and, and work on things is pretty, pretty cool. It's a pretty neat perspective for those guys out there to have. So, yeah, absolutely. And he, the cool thing with that too, is that they are very close out of the facility as well. I know that um, they've, they've played golf together before they, you know, they just have like this really good friendship. Um, that I think comes from an appreciation from Matt, you know, who he didn't come from a baseball family, came from a basketball family. And so, you know, in, in my opinion, I'm sure there was probably some added pressure of going, you know, where do I start? You know, and having having an NBA dad who didn't have that experience with baseball either. So they, they sort of had to feel their way through it. And that relationship with Randy and Bridget really, really did a lot of, a lot of good for them as a family. And, um, definitely a really cool program that they have going on over there i want to say it's in the sacramento area yeah correctly and they're doing some really good stuff working with local athletes over there too so really good good stuff they have going on yeah yep that was great all right so let's um i don't want to hold you too long so let's try to get to the arizona fall league and just kind of talk you know a little bit about you know the the key guy well we'll talk about everybody the tigers had out there to some degree but um you know the star of the show out there for the tigers is is daz cameron and um you know, from everything I've seen, um, Daz looks like he's doing extremely well out there. We're seeing a lot of plate discipline. He's drawn a drawn a ton of walks. Um, still, still running the the bases really aggressively. Cranked his first home run the other night. Um, you know, there's been some some pretty cool footage of you know, especially some of the matchups, like seeing him hit a triple off of Forrest Whitley, who's one of the the top pitching prospects in the game. Um, it seems like things are going pretty well with with Mr. Cameron out there. Um, what were your impressions when you uh, when you went out to see him? 
Yeah, the thing with Daz, and you know, we've we've had the chance to really watch him kind of come into his own since he came over from the Astros last year, um, in the Justin Verlander trade. And the thing that I really respect about Daz is that he he's not in a hurry when it comes to development. He's not rushing things. He's not you know really going. Oh, I gotta get to this point. I gotta get to that point. He's a competitor, but he's more somebody that I would call like a quiet competitor. And something he said is that he's really just trying to kind of keep a balance in the development of his overall game. So he's not going, man, I just got to do this. He just, he wants to be Mm well-rounded everywhere he plays. And so the fact that, you know, he has so much admiration for his dad, there's obviously conversations, which he said they talk every day, you know, whether it be about life or about, you know, learning how to tackle some new aspects of his, his training and all of that. That it really is a benefit for him, just having that close relationship with his dad. Um, but something for him that I think going to be interesting is while there's a lot of comparisons there, I think Daz is a couple steps ahead of his dad. And his dad has actually really admitted the same thing because he got um, Daz out there much earlier than Mike did when Mike started playing. Oh, yeah. And so having an earlier time out on the field, he's got more development for, you know, his arm, he's showing a bit more power earlier. Um, Mike's power came a little bit more into like his mid-20s. And Daz is still only 21. And he's already, like you just said, hit his first home run. Um, and this is after playing, what, 130-plus games in the regular season. And now he's going out to Arizona and still showing he's got some of that power. So it's, it's a good sign for him. Um, as a defender, I like everything I've seen from him. He He's not going to show that big Derek Hill type speed um, mm-hmm. that we've seen, you know, in the outfield. But I would put him up as a future plus runner at least. Um, he could get even a bit faster than that. I know Mike. I don't know Mike's grades off the top of my head from his playing days, but I know Mike can run. He yeah. can run really, really well. And I think you're looking at a future plus runner from Daz. Um, gets pretty good routes. If I had to be particular about it, I'd say I think his routes could get a little bit better. Um, and I, I really, I think it's confidence. I just think for him, it's learning himself and learning his body and really learning to trust his instincts because it's all there. I've seen so many good things from him. Scouts really like what they see in him. And he's growing up. I think that's that's a big piece to it. And it was, it was some really promising stuff I saw from him while I was out there. Uh, yeah, that's great to hear. And, you know, he just he just gives that that um, like like as you mentioned earlier, like he just has a really balanced sense of of what he's trying to do out there. Like, you know, you see some guys who feel like, you know, they have that desperation and maybe, you know, this is just part of the maturity that comes from growing up in baseball like Daz did, where, you know, guys think they've got to, you know, they've got to hit the ball a country mile. Um, they've, you know, they've got to you know, kind of eyewash it on every play and, you know, run and dive and slide everywhere. But, you know, Daz just seems like he understands that if he's, if he just kind of keeps developing all parts of his game, like the, the tools are just all there for him to be a really complete five tool player. Um, I know you're, you know, you're friends with Eric Langenhagen from Fangraphs. And I know he, he mentioned that in his chat today, someone asked him about him and he's just like, you know, that's just, just a very complete ball player who looks like he's going to be good at everything, even if he doesn't, you know, turn out to be great in any particular facet. He's just going to be a very solid all-around ball player who looks like he could be really good for a long time to come for the Tigers. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I know, you know, obviously there's always those conversations throughout the Tigers fan base. What are the benefits of all the trades from last year? The Tigers made so many trades last year. Of the key guys, you know, like Ian Kinsler, um, 
you know, J.D. Martinez, Justin Verlander, you know, we saw Alex Taylor go to the Cubs for a hot minute, three other teams since then, but... <laughs> yeah, a lot, of, a lot of talent has gone away. A lot, of, a lot of talent has moved, and unfortunately, well, when you embrace a rebuild season, you know it's going to take some time, but you still want to see some type of glimmer of hope from the guys who came back. Like, do we see a future role for them? Do we see enough to where we can really put some stock into what their future contribution could be at the major league level. And I think in the case of Daz, as well as a couple other guys that have been watching develop, I think, like he said, Daz isn't going to be a consistently flashy over-the-top player, but Daz is going to be consistently good. And that's, that's what the Tigers need. They need a dependable guy who can get the job done on both sides of the ball, and I think he's the guy to do that for him. Yeah, uh, love hearing that. Yep, yep. Daz, Daz has definitely seemed like a good one, you know. And it, it really, it just all seemed to kind of come together for him last year. And you know, he just, he just hasn't stopped growing. Um, were you surprised at all that that he went out to play in the Arizona Fall League? It's always kind of a, you know, a little bit of a mystery why teams send certain guys and not others. You know, obviously there are guys who were injured and kind of need to make up the innings or just the reps. Um, but that's not really the case with Daz. Did any, did you hear any, anything from them about particularly why they decided to send him out there? Um, nothing really in particular. Um, I think if I were to go with my gut on that, I think that the Tigers are investing in him. I think that they really like the fact that he handled the pressure of everything he saw this season, obviously made the jump to um, high to start the year. <laughs> tackled that without any problem, jumped to double A, impressed everybody, went up to triple A, impressed everybody again. And so I think for Detroit, they're going, we've got a guy who can handle pressure. We've got a guy who can handle transition. He proves he could hit, you know, 260, 270 plus at the levels and be able to perform defensively. And so in, in a time where they're going to need that from players, I think it was really just to give him more of an opportunity to to learn himself because when you're 21, you're still figuring things out. You're not always going to have every piece put into place. And so uh, as a move from the Tigers, I think it was, hey, you're progressing. Let's give you a few more reps and see how you handle it. Yeah. Yeah. And as long as, you know, he was healthy and feeling good, kind of makes sense to just sort of kind of keep building on what was, this, you know, a really impressive year. Um, I don't want to make too much of his AAA numbers because he was only up there for, you know, a week or two, but you know, he stepped right in there um, as, as Toledo was trying to get into the postseason and just absolutely just raked again. Um, just didn't seem phased by the by the change, the new teammates, you know, the new circumstances facing new pitchers. Um, just seems to have a, a very strong, you know, kind of quiet confidence to himself where he just just seems to handle a lot of things in stride. And yeah, maybe, you know, maybe some of that is the background. Yeah, I would say, you know, for him, it really is a skill of just being able to slow everything down um, with, with him. If he's feeling pressure, he's not going to show it. Um, he's got the ability to, to keep his, keep his heart off his sleeve <laughs> to, to a certain degree. He doesn't really show people how he's feeling. He just goes out there. He sorts through it. Um, if he's frustrated, he's going to go out and make sure it doesn't happen again. He learns from, from the struggles that he has and, for him, I think it's just the fact that he knows how to pace himself. He understands what he can handle. And mentally, he can get the game to a stop like that in his mind. And I think that's why we're seeing the type of success we've seen from him. Yeah. Yep. And it just, yeah, I mean, I think you can kind of see that in, 
you know, the place to discipline he, he's shown, you know, I've only, I've only seen, you know, a little bit from Arizona fall league, but I watched him a lot this year. And Daz just gives you that impression of a guy who, who has that quiet confidence. He's not out there, you know, trying to do damage on every pitch. He's, he's really selective. He's, you know, he's, he's definitely, you know, got a, a very advanced sense of the strike zone. Um, you just, you just love to see all that. Um, if, you know, if Daz Cameron finds, you know, even his dad's power, he's, he's going to be a heck of a player. So, and even if he doesn't, he's going to be a very, very solid all around player. It looks like for, for a long time to come. Do you, do you think that Daz will make it to the majors next year? Here's, there's a bold, bold, an ask for a, uh, for a prediction. Do you think he'll at least like kind of get there by the, by late in the season? Yeah, I do. Yeah. I honestly do. I think that they're going to give him at least a cup of coffee. It could be kind of a Kristen Stewart type of an appearance where, you know, he gets the last few weeks of, of the season, get some reps at the plate, get some reps in the outfield. Um, I don't believe, and, and I'll, I'll word this carefully to explain to, to the listeners, I think he has enough to where he could be a future center fielder at the major league level. I don't think he's quite there yet. Mm-hmm. I think if they do bring him up, he will probably end up in one of the corners to start. I think that as he gets a little bit more physically confident, that he has enough to cover center field. Um, but as of right now, I don't see him going up against a guy like Jacoby Jones, um, knowing his athleticism. I don't see that, that being a competition, but I think a little further down the road, he could make that transition. And I think he's got the tools to handle it without any problem. All right on. Yeah. And you know, maybe they'll, you know, and maybe they'll just kind of let him, you know, take a, take his lumps out there a little bit. Um, Jacoby obviously is, is kind of tricky because the bat, you know, is, is still so far behind the defense, but yeah, I mean, Jacoby Jones is a pretty pretty rare center field defender, and you know, for Daz Cameron having to kind of move to Comerica's center part, center, center field in particular, um, is, you know, that that's definitely a challenge. I mean, he's got good speed, but but like you said, he's he's maybe a plus runner at his at his absolute max, but he's not he's not a freakish you know burner out there who's going to be running all over the place, kind of making up for bad reads and all that. So he's he's probably got to have all that really well ref- refined before he's playing center field on a daily basis in Comerica, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. And going up against a guy like Jacoby Jones, which I, I completely agree with you on the hit tool for him, it's it's still spotty. Um, you know, it's it, we've seen glimpses of the fact that he can hit for some power. He's got an ability to, you know, to produce and to come up with some key hits. But it's very, very, very hit or miss. Um, but as far as on the defensive side, Daz just isn't there yet. I think Jacoby has an up and multiple tools defensively when it comes to that. But I think further down the road, um, Daz could provide some competition in that regard. But for now, you know, if, if Jacoby can keep it up, um, the fact that his hitting is struggling, he's going to have to work all that much harder defensively to hold that spot. But I think Daz isn't far behind. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. And obviously, you know, Daz, Daz should be the, the better offensive player. And, 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 you know, you just never know that may, they may end up giving him the nod, even if he's, if he's not, you know, if he's, well, and he probably won't, won't quite be on Jacoby Jones level um, defensively ever, but, you know, as an all around player, it, the, the whole package might be good enough just to kind of, um, for them to just kind of live with it. If he's not, you know, not a plus defender early in his career or takes a little time to get to that point. So yeah, we'll just kind of have to see. Um, you know, Daz is obviously the most, you know, kind of exciting of the prospects that are out in Arizona right now. But um, maybe maybe another one who's who's going to be crucial to the Tigers um, rebuilding plans is Jake Rogers. Um, obviously, the catcher that we got in the Justin Verlander deal 
with the Houston Astros. Um, it sounded like you got to spend a little bit of time with with Jake out there. I know the bit, you know, he's been struggling a little bit with the bat out there. Um, but obviously being a catcher, suddenly catching, you know, this whole host of pitchers that you know absolutely nothing about with no no time to get used to them has got to be, you know, challenging in its own. So what was what were your impressions of him out there? Yeah, and the funny thing with Jake, I actually brought up that conversation with him about having to catch an entirely new staff, you know, of guys that he maybe saw during the year but didn't actually get the opportunity to catch for. And he kind of laughed about it and he said it's, it's kind of a situation of, you walk up to him and say, hi, I'm Jake. What are you going to throw today? <laughs> <laughs> and then he goes, it's a very quick conversation. He said, oh, before the season started, he said, I maybe caught for about a third of the pitching staff. And so he said there was probably, you know, another whole portion of guys. He goes, I had never caught, period. Yeah. And so to come out there, he said, you kind of jog out to the mound. You do a quick little, I'm going to be your catcher today. <laughs> And then you jump back out there, and he goes, it's a good challenge. He goes, man, it's, it's tough. It's tough. It's not something you're used to. Yeah. Yeah, it's got to be tricky to call, call <laughs> to try to call games with guys who you're, you're, you barely know what, what they have, let alone, you know, what they can throw and what count, you know, to what location, like where all their strengths and weaknesses are. Yeah. Definitely. But... And I, I think with, with Jake's case, too, and obviously this goes without saying, but he defensively, he's so solid. He's such a solid catcher. You could ask anybody around the league, and they'll tell you the same thing. And, um, you know, like you said, the hitting is still a struggle for him. And the, the thing with that is that he knows it. He understands the issue that it is. And something that really kind of stood out to me when I was speaking with um, the manager of the Mesa Solar Sox, which is where the Tigers guys are assigned right now, Lou Marston, who is he's a young manager, former catcher himself. And he said the thing that impressed him the most, he didn't really know who any of the guys were. He kind of got to know them when they arrived, like the rest of the managers. And he said from the moment he met Jake, he said Jake did not stop asking questions. Mm, yeah. And he said to me, that's a sign of a guy who understands where he needs to work and he's willing to put in the work and he wants to get better. And he said that's that's really all there is to it. So as far as being in the right place mentally and emotionally and wanting to move forward, Jake is absolutely there. But in order to really set himself apart as a legitimate prospect, you know, getting those pieces put together, he spent a ton of time with uh, Mike Huffman, who, as we all know, knows a thing or two about hitting. Yep. He proved that very quickly. <laughs> um, and he spent a lot of time with Jake in Double A during the regular season, working on, you know, mental tricks, you know, polishing his stance, working on his hands, getting, getting all those things to kind of try and come into play. And Jake knows he's the guy who's got to make it happen. So he's putting in the work, and we're just we're hoping to see some of that improvement going into next season. Yeah, you know, I I can see, you know, Jake's another one who, you know, obviously the the bat definitely has a good ways to go. Um, there's still, you know, too much swing and miss probably in his game. Um, you know, the average isn't particularly good, and a lot of that is because he hits a lot of fly balls, and he's sort of got you know kind of a kind of an uppercut swing to you know paired with that that leg kick. Um, but you know, catchers, there just aren't a lot of good hit, hitting catchers in, in the major leagues. And so I, I do kind of wonder, like, you know, it, it may not be that much of a leap for, for Jake either. Um, just, just because, you know, it feels like, and I'll, I'm curious to your opinion about this, but you know, there's a lot for catchers to learn obviously before they get to the major leagues, but there's also a lot to learn when they get there. And it kind of feels like promoting catchers aggressively is not a bad play just because, 
you know, at a certain point, like catchers just are going to wear down. You you only have so much, you know, so much time, so many times you can crouch behind the plate before your knees start to get bad. And I could see them maybe promoting him relatively aggressively too, but yeah, but there's going to have to be, there's going to have to be a little less swing and miss. It seems like in, in the game, He's, he obviously draws walks and you know, has a pretty good idea of the strike zone, but um, still, still a little bit, a little bit soft on the contact. It feels like. <laughs> Yeah, I would definitely say that. And I think we, I think we see him in AAA next year. Um, I, I'm not going to say to start the year per se, um, but I think that we will see him there eventually. And for for Jake, it's really, yeah, it's just going to have to be showing that he can put those pieces together because I think that he's shown he can hit for some power. There's definitely some power there, um, but the contact rate is just it's it's too low. It's it's really really low right now. And for me personally, when I'm evaluating hitters the fall league really to me is not the best place to do that yeah just because of the fact that these guys have played so many games they've played so many games and i i got to see some contact from jake while i was out there but even then he looked tired yeah you know, and they're out there giving their full effort but they're i mean they've been playing since february right they've been they've been on a baseball field since february <laughs> we're taking you know, a couple weeks here or there and you've got to imagine these guys are gassed. And so the fact that they're out there, you know, still putting in that effort speaks volumes about who they are as players. But the body will only go so far. And so I'm not going to put too much stock into what I'm seeing as far as future projection goes. Yeah. And there's just that professionalism that, you know, a guy like him especially seems to exemplify where, you know, he's he's all about his, his pitching, pitching staff. And like, you know, like we said, He's catching, you know, two thirds of a staff that he's never seen before. There's just a lot else to do on top of, yeah, just like the physical exertion, you know, the the length of the season. So it's probably not, yeah, probably not smart to take too much away from what's going on with the bat out there. Um, You know, it was, I thought it was really encouraging that, you know, he, he struggled, you know, quite a bit in April and May. And then really, you know, at a certain point seemed to settle in and really, really hit the cover off the ball for a couple months and, and was finishing, you know, fairly strong. And that, you know, and that I think probably should, should be what people take away from his 2018 more so than, well, okay, he went out to the fall league and, you know, didn't suddenly start lighting everybody on fire. So, yeah. Well, and unfortunately in the case of Jake Rogers, you know, obviously with that, with Daz Cameron and um, Franklin Perez as well, they were the pieces of one of the biggest trades for Detroit, period. Yeah. And so, unfortunately for them, they're going to be expected with unreasonable expectations, go out and perform like Justin Verlander because you just <laughs> took Justin Verlander from us. So now you have to show that you can be as good, if not better, which for a minor league player is completely unreasonable. And so, the really going back to what you said, the improvements that he made, I want to say he came close for home runs. I think he came close to tying his single season career high in home runs for the year. And so that shows you he's got power there. He's got the ability to hit for power. For him, I asked him about it. He thinks it's a mental thing. Um, he, he was very honest about all of it. He said, you know, I don't think it's so much that it's it's my, my footing or my stance or my, you know, this or that. He goes, I really think it's mental, you know. And, and I spoke with Lou Morrison about that, too, and, and Lou agreed. He goes, it's, he goes, I don't know if it's his catchers, but he goes, Young guys like that tend to go out and they're already picturing hitting the ball over the fence. Mm-hmm. And he said sometimes that can create an issue. You know, mentally you're you're getting ahead of yourself. You're already imagining something. And he said you've got to slow the game down 
You've got to get to a place mentally as a hitter where you're prepared, but you're not getting two steps ahead of where you need to be to focus on making that contact. So it's it's a learning process. And yeah, he's, you know, at the ripe old age of 23, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the clock is not ticking on Jake. I think that, you know, he's got time to work with this. I think the progress we saw from him this year, it's encouraging. Got a lot of work to do ahead of him, and I'm not going to deny that, but the, the progression has been really, really good to watch. Yeah, yeah, and that's the key is is just, you know, has has a guy stalled or is he continuing to develop, and does he have a good sense of what he needs to do? And, yeah, Jake Jake Rogers seems to really have a good head on his shoulders in all those all those regards. Wasn't wasn't something that he mentioned that, um, you know, as a catcher, sometimes it's it's too easy to think that you can, you know, that you kind of can guess what's coming, and you can kind of get into a habit of, of trying to follow along too much with with what the pitcher and catcher you're facing are doing as opposed to just sort of letting it happen and going into a little bit more natural kind of see ball hit ball sort of approach i i think that can play a factor with it because i think as a catcher you are so mental in your approach you're always analyzing trying to call the shots trying to you know stay a step ahead step ahead on behalf of your pitching staff and so that part of it can i think add a little bit of an extra challenge but um, Jake's incredibly intelligent as a hitter, um, but for him, it's just putting the physical aspects where they need to go and making what he knows in his head translate to his hands and be able to show that timing and that contact rate, um, being able to improve. So that part of it, the intellect is there. There's so many pieces already there, but he's got to be able to put it into play to really show that it can uh, it can make a, an impact early on. Yeah. Yep, and it just you know it just makes sense you know it makes sense that he that he needs another year at least and probably you know probably more than that um you know I think you know if if we're reasonable you know hopefully we'll see him in in 2020 sometime in Detroit but um you just kind of have to let it play out and if he needs a little more time than that you know that's that's perfectly okay as well um let's move on to yeah let's talk about Gregory Soto because Gregory Soto is such a such an interesting little enigma in a way um you know my of Gregory Soto. Yeah, you know, I mean, this this big lefty with a, just an absolutely monster fastball breaking ball combination who, you know, just kind of keeps kind of ping-ponging back and forth between having these seasons where he kind of feels like he's he's starting to get his command kind of sorted out and, and more consistency. And then unfortunately, you know, this year, you know, really kind of took a step back um, with a lot of eyes on him. But um, what did you see from him out uh, out in Arizona at, at this point? It seems like he's been, you know, he's, he's kind of had some, some nice progress going on in the early going out there. Yeah, you know, when it comes to, to Gregory, who I've, I've really watched a lot of Gregory over the last couple of years, and that's kind of helped me sort of pick up some of the patterns that I've seen from him. And one of his challenges, for those of you who are familiar with, with guys like, you know, Joe Jimenez and, Daniel Norris, these are guys who take this role very, very, very seriously. And if they have a bad game, shaking off a bad game is very hard. Mm-hmm. Very, very hard. And you're going to find the, the apologetic you know, person at the end who feels like they've ruined everything for everyone because that's how highly they hold this role. That's how important they view this game and how seriously they take it. And I think for Gregory, it's it's an issue of him just wanting to be able to live up to what he thinks he's capable of and that, you know, the Tigers thinks he's capable of that as well. So just for him, it's a desire to win and a desire to do well. And he does not like falling short of that. And that's, that's a very admirable trait to have. 
you know, when you see what you're capable of and you understand that you still have work to do. And I see that with Gregory very, very well. Um, out west, I saw good stuff from him. I saw really, really good stuff from him, and especially knowing the ups and downs that he's had. Um, I watched him pitch in the Florida State League this year, and it, it, it was rough. It yeah. was a rough time. Really, it's it's his command. I mean, there's multiple guys in the system you and I could talk about who they just they struggle to find that command on their fastball, especially that's been the case with him. And what I saw in Arizona was not dialed back so much as – a little bit just more controlled overall. Um, his delivery looked a little bit tighter. Um, it didn't look quite as whiplash. <laughs> yeah, he's and definitely then, had a very aggressive aggressive motion when I've seen him the past two years, yeah. He does, he does. He's, he's a very, very much an attack-style pitcher, which you want that from a lefty. You know, teams look for left-handers who have that type of velocity and that type of approach. And, and Gregory is a bulldog. He's an absolute bulldog on the mound. And from him, I saw that same attack style in Arizona. I only got to watch him throw one full outing. But it was it was very much attack in the strike zone. But he was in control. His body was in control. And anybody who knows him, like, like we've known him over the last couple of years, that's an encouraging thing to see because he's, I want to say he's 23 as well. Um, so he's, he's a couple of years behind um, Sandy Baez, who obviously debuted this year. And the Tigers are hoping to see the same type of progression for Soto. Um, but he, he's really going to have to polish that. And so what, it, what he showed out in Arizona was definitely promising for sure. Uh, that's that's really good to hear because I you know I, I keep thinking of of and and these two don't have anything necessarily in common other than being hard throwing lefties but you know we, we saw Hyrule Labort just kind of just kind of implode um, you know last late last season and and this spring um, kind of you know off the off the radar too you know it wasn't like we you know we got to see him you know the Tigers cut him and you're just sort of like you just don't know and I think for fans you know the mystery of command for pitchers is, is just one of those things that, you know, can, can really kind of, kind of baffle you because, you know, a guy can just have it for, for one year and then, you know, and then just not, and there isn't necessarily like a physical explanation, isn't necessarily even a mental explanation. So yeah, it's, it's, it's just really good to know, or at least to have the perspective that, you know, Gregory Soto is, is definitely a, a guy who's, who's really grinding out there and really working hard at it because man, um, when, you know, when he's right, and I'm sure this, this probably vexes him too, because when he's right, I mean, he is really hard to hit, you know, and you've seen this obviously just explosive fastball, you know, really dynamic breaking ball, you know, even if you kind of tend to, you know, project him more as a reliever than a starter, I mean, the stuff is just so good. So yeah, you know, he's just one of those guys that you really keep in the, in your back pocket, just like, you know, say a little prayer at night to, to Detroit Tigers, Jesus, like <laughs> the specific, the specific part of Jesus that roots for the Detroit Tigers, like, please let Gregory Soto turn out to be really good. Cause that would be awesome. His, his stuff really, really is good. And I think, um, I, I will agree with you on the fact that I think he is a future reliever um, just because of the fact that when I've seen him work in shorter spurts, I've seen more effectiveness from him. Um, and so I think as far as that goes, he could be a really, really effective lefty piece out of the bullpen for Detroit. If, 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 that's a big capital I-F, <laughs> if the stuff can find its own identity and if it can stay consistent because the velocity is there. I've watched him hit upwards of 97 miles an hour on his fastball from the left side. It's ugly. It's, it's, it's re 
really, really ugly. And if his off-speed stuff can catch up, I think that they've got a really useful piece in him. But those those little aspects just have to come together. Yeah. Yeah. Has he been a guy who's who's kind of tended to fade, like, in the second and third time through the order? Maybe as he gets a little bit tired and starts kind of overthrowing those, those sorts of things? He, he does a little bit. And it's funny because you look at a guy like Sandy Baez, who obviously is, is out in Arizona as well. Sandy tends to throw harder as the game goes on, which I found really interesting. And with Greg, I think of the two, and again, this is just kind of based off of my feel for the two of them, I feel like Greg works harder earlier. Mm-hmm. Sandy tends to put in more effort later, so he almost kind of picks up speed. And Greg is so attack, attack, attack right from the get-go. I think you see more from him early as opposed to Sandy Baez, who sort of gains momentum and then really starts to just kind of become terrifying. Opposing <laughs> hitter, watching, I mean, I watch him hit 100 miles an hour with his fastball, and it's its its biting. It's a biting fastball. So really, for Greg, he's, he's probably going to be better in shorter spurts, and I think he ends up in the bullpen long term. Yeah, yeah, that definitely kind of sounds like the the reliever mentality versus versus more of the starter mentality. Um, speaking of Sandy Baez, then because the you know we've kind of been waiting for Sandy for a while now, just because I mean the you know the arm talent is is really good, um, but you know it didn't seem like the transition to relief that they made sort of in the middle of the year took real well with them, and and maybe that kind of goes toward you know just kind of that that mentality that you're talking about of a guy who needs to sort of like warm up and get into the game before he can really, you know, he really loosens up and, and starts letting it fly. Um, did you get a chance to talk to him at all about that? Or do you have any kind of insight on, on what, what his feelings were about converting to relief? Yeah. Yeah. We actually spoke a little bit um, after one of uh, the games that Mesa played while I was down there and he, obviously he gets, gets all starry-eyed even now talking about his major league debut because he he's, comes from such a good place you know, as a player, really just a very humble guy. I honestly, I can't say enough about Sandy. Sandy's just, he's, he's got his head in the right place. Um, and you ask him his favorite thing, and he'll he'll look at you and kind of smile and say, you know, I struck out Aaron Judge. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he gets a little bit excited because, I mean, he's out there living his dream, you know, just like all these other guys are trying to do too. So for him, when we talked about, you know, just his opportunity to be out in Arizona, um, he, he understood the fact that he's one of the older guys out there. And he said for him, being able to face these younger hitters, it's giving him a chance to really see what's up and coming and what he may have to face further down the road. So it's sort of kind of giving him a preview of, you know, these are the types of hitters you're going to face. Is your stuff good enough to keep them off balance? Is your stuff going to be effective enough? And for him, he said, you know, his fastball command is really a top priority for him right now. But he said his um, his off-speed stuff, too. He said, I understand my off-speed stuff is going to keep me at the next level. And if my off-speed stuff isn't working the way I want it to, it's going to hold me back. So he said, if I want to move forward, the off-speed stuff has to work. And he said, my fastball command really has to get better. Yeah. Yep. And yeah, you know, it's just, he's at that kind of tricky place where, you know, you're at a point where, you know, the, the Tigers farm system is, you know, much, much deeper than it was a few years ago. You know, they, they protected Sandy two years ago from the rule five draft. And yeah, he's just sort of getting to, unfortunately, that decision time where, you know, and it sounds like he knows it where, you know, at a, at a certain point, 
you know, the team isn't going to be able to, to kind of spend a 40 man roster spot on you necessarily. And that that's when you kind of enter that sort of limbo where you get bounced around and, you know, teams are picking you up and trying you out and, and all those sort of, sort of things can start to come to pass. So, yeah, I mean, really, really, we'll just have to see, I guess, if the Tigers, you know, decide to give them another shot. You know, I take a look at the 40-man the right now, and I can see, you know, some other arms on there that I would I would probably be more willing to let go than I would Sandy. It'd be nice to give Sandy, you know, at least one more one more go around, but we'll just have to see what the, what the Tigers decide to do in December, I suppose. Um. Let's see. You know what? The, the other one I wanted to hit, and I don't want to keep it forever because we've already been talking a really long time. But let's let, let's talk about Mr. Schreiber a little bit because you know he's he's kind of a fan of or you know BYB is is you know pretty invested in Mr. Schreiber's success. You know we've had um, Keenan Carter who writes about prospects for us has, has talked to him and is a big fan, and uh, we really like him as well. So uh, yeah, did you you didn't get a chance to to hang out with him? But um, how was he how was he looking out there? And I, I you know I know he's been working on his changeup, and that's kind of been a been a key focus for him um have you heard anything about how that's been coming along yeah we we didn't get a chance to really talk in depth every every time we ran into each other he was running to and from one place to the next and so unfortunately we didn't get too much one-on-one time um but we did talk a little bit about um his his off speed stuff and how that's kind of coming together and for those of you who don't know um came up in 2016, spent the whole of 2017 in the Midwest League. Pretty sure he sent opposing hitters home in tears. <laughs> he just dominated. You know, for, for all the listeners, you don't know about John Schreiber, go on to MILB, look at the numbers, and tell me you don't get a little sick to your stomach. It's the numbers he put up in 2017 were obscene. I'll just put it that way. Um, and the fact that he stayed there the whole year obviously sort of became a little bit of a Paul Bunyan legend within the minor league system for Detroit. So that success he had, I think, really kind of established him. He came out of a smaller school. Um, he really wasn't somebody who grabbed attention very quickly, but the fact that his deception was so effective so quickly I think really kind of set the standard for him and really put him in a good spot coming into this year. Um, the Tigers really invested a lot in him, giving him time in big week camp during spring training. He got to pitch against some pretty pretty solid hitters in major league camp. And so that, that was good exposure for him. And for him, I mean, he's he's got the mix of stuff, but he's really, really going to have to stay disruptive. Um, as you know, when you get to the double-A level, especially for the Tigers in the Eastern League, that's a tough, tough league. Yeah. It's a tough league. Very, very seasoned hitters. Guys who are getting ready for you to throw on stuff that you think is a little sneaky. They're going, yeah, I've seen that before. I'm going to take you deep the next at that. <laughs> they understand how that works. So as, as a pitcher, you've got the arm slot that Shriver has. There's a lot to work with there, but it's really just going to be a matter of tightening up all of his pitches. He's got good movement on his fastball. He's hitting about, I think, 90-91 on his fastball from that below three-quarter slot. That's that's going to do some damage, but it's going to have to be timed just right. His his changeup, he was talking about how he found a grip on his changeup he really, really likes. Yeah. Um, it's getting the life on it that it needs. Um and he said he, he kind of toyed around with it for a while because you kind of get to that point where you've got to find what works for you. And these all these Tigers pitchers, they've got Jorge Cordova back out in Arizona too. They've all had him as a coach at one point or another. 
And so obviously he, he showed his effectiveness as a teacher with guys like Joe Jimenez, helped him get that famous slider that we've all gotten used to seeing now at the major league level. Jorge knows what he's talking about. He knows these boys so well. And so John specifically mentioned how grateful he was to have Jorge back and be able to kind of, you know, quote-unquote, pick up where they left off. So it's, it's been special for all of them, especially for Jorge. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, you know, I, I remember Matt uh, Manning actually yeah, was, was really, really complimentary of, of Jorge as well. Seems like um, seems like he's really well-loved. Um, yeah, and for a guy like Schreiber, you know, he's – I mean, if if fans out there who are listening haven't haven't seen him, I'd advise them to go to YouTube and take a look. Um, it is a really low three quarter slot. He really throws across himself and hides the ball well. Um, he's not like a perfect comp for like Darren O'Day or someone like that, but that's kind of kind of the role you would you would envision as sort of being his ceiling. Um, but yeah, it just it kind of feels like that changeup is going to be the key to be able to kind of balance things out against lefties and you know because he doesn't have you know super super high octane gas or anything like that. Um, although the slider is is pretty nasty, um, but yeah, it really feels like that. Is, yeah, the slider is very very effective, and I think um, for him, and it's it's interesting for anybody who studies up on side on pitchers, the qualifications of an actual submarine pitcher, um, the difference in the arm slot really is the fact that it's what they call the knuckle scraping mm-hmm. arm slot, where you're bringing your arm down that low in that that's what qualifies as a submarine pitcher. So Shriver kind of technically falls just shy of that title, but that low three-quarter slot and the angle and the spin he gets on the ball from that release point makes him very, very difficult to time up. So like you were just saying, with the fastball velocity and movement from that slot, that's got some damage to it. The slider showed it really, really effective. So he's able to really get confident with the grip he's found in his changeup. I think he could really do some fun stuff next year. Yeah. Yep. Just seems like a good dude too. So yeah, he, he should be really interesting to follow. And, you know, he does have, you know, a lot of times when we think of, you know, low three quarters and submarine type guys, you think of a guy who's throwing 87, 88, you know, maybe has a changeup at 82, a breaking ball around that level. And, you know, Schreiber's got a little more power than that. He's sort of sort of a power, power, almost side armor, you know, from that perspective. So, yeah, it's it's he could really um, he could really be a useful piece in a future bullpen. It's going to be interesting to watch him. And let's see, who's the other one? You know, you know, we could talk, you know, there's also Danny Woodrow, Danny Panero out there, both of them, you know, doing reasonably well. Um, you know, we'll just kind of have to see what comes of that. Eduardo Jimenez, though, who, who you know, has put up really good numbers the past two years. Um, did you have any any insight on how he's he's doing out there and how the Tigers are kind of looking at him as far as a future relief piece? Yeah, yeah, he's another another one of a whole list of these these big velocity arms that the Tigers are really trying to kind of help them discover their identity because when you you've got the Harrisonos of the world, you know, the Latimer Pintos of the world who they're throwing the cover off the ball, but that's kind of the extent of it. And for guys like Eduardo Jimenez, who he showed that velocity early on when he got to Arizona um, again, with Jorge Cordova, when he found out he was going to have Eduardo back, he said instantly I knew what I wanted to work with him on. Instantly I, I knew the areas I wanted to help him with. And for Jimenez, it was lower half focus. He said there were some different aspects of how he was working his lower half and his release that just weren't functioning the way they were supposed to. And he said that for his fastball specifically, he wasn't getting the angle on his fastball to really get the max velocity out of it. And so he had him kind of shift up a little bit of the weight in his back leg, 
which um, if you look, I want to say on my, I think on my YouTube or you can look around, but I did, I tweeted out um, a comparison that the wonderful Pitching Ninja, <laughs> go follow him on Twitter. He's an absolute genius yep. when it comes to that kind of stuff. And he and I will sort of nerd out about mechanics, you know, and we'll compare different things. And I get to, you know, share the things from the minor league side, which he's obviously more focused on the major league side. And we get to, we get to have fun with that stuff. So I always enjoy that. But um, we put together that comparison of you. It's very, very subtle. You have to look very, very close, but it's, it's a little bit of a shift in how his back leg is moving, and he's been able to add a couple miles an hour back to his velocity since then. He looked very controlled, and we saw him from, I think it was two outings, and they were both very short outings, but he looked very controlled, showed some good velocity, set about 95, 96, um, maxing out on his fastball, and for him, that's, that's what you need. You need more consistency in your release, and then obviously a little more polish to his secondary, but it was really promising stuff that I saw from him. Yeah, yeah, that's good to hear. He, um, you know, yeah, it just kind of looks like they're kind of emphasizing, you know, staying on his on his right side, on his on his plant leg a little bit more, and and kind of driving off that a little a little later, or just kind of having it a little more synced up. You know, yeah, it looked like he was kind of getting getting things kind of synced up to where you're not flying open, which maybe was a little bit of the problem. It looked like he, he kind of opened up a little bit early, um, you know, in, in sort of the before video as compared to the after. So yeah, that should be interesting to see. Cause that's, that's definitely a talented arm right there as well. Yeah. Let's see. I, you know, I think we'll probably let it go there. I just real, before we wrap it up, is there any, is there anything you've kind of been hearing at all about like um, guys, you know, work in the Dominican winter league or Venezuela or, or Mexico? I know Willie Castro has been, has been doing pretty well um, in the Dominican winter league. Still, still not, still not drawing walks, but hitting for a lot of power, which is nice. Exactly. Exactly. And I, I, the way I look at it, how I gauge the ability to draw walks, if you can walk once or twice, that's more than Donald Lugo is walking. That's, that's a plus. Yeah. But so he needs to do that a little bit more. Um, Jacob Robson is all done in the Dominican. Um, I had been contacted by one of my my sources out there um, that said he actually came down with the flu um, while he was out in the Dominican and came to the agreement that he was going to be all wrapped up there. Um, I spoke with the Tigers. They said that he has improved. He's doing much better now. Um, than he was but yeah he he's been released from his time and i say released very carefully he has not been released from the team <laughs> don't get on twitter and start rumors <laughs> um, his time has ended in the dominican yeah. so just to clarify on that um yeah willie castro has has been showing some good numbers i think he's somebody that we could see get a little bit extra attention from detroit next season um he did a very very good job handling the transition to triple eight in the year and Isaac Paredes is effective and active in Mexico. So he's, he's started to play there a little bit. Um, Joel Lugo has been activated to play in the Dominican. Um, Harold Castro is playing in Venezuela. Um, and I think we're going to see a couple of Tigers guys start to show up in um, Australia once their league gets underway as well. So got a few guys um, that are already in the mix. And... Um, Daniel Norris, yeah. I believe, is going to get started in Japan. Um, I forget the schedule for the it's the, the he, MLB Showcase. I think is what it's called. Yeah, he actually he actually had his first appearance. I think it was 
I, I'm going to get it all wrong because of the, the time difference, but I think it was yesterday he, he got in for like a really, yeah. So he did get in a, a relief appearance, but yeah, you know, the, the baseball, baseball world, you know, doesn't, doesn't stop just when the Tigers do, you know, everybody's still out there working. There's still a lot of, a lot of players active at this point. Everybody's working. And I, the thing that really encouraged me about Daniel Norris is I want to say he made four starts in the Dominican before they transitioned him over to Japan and he put up some really good numbers. He put up really, really good numbers. There's a few walks there. Um, so there's still a little bit of work to do, but what you really want to see from him is a healthy Daniel Norris. Yeah. And if we can get a healthy Daniel Norris, he can work on the other aspects of it. So hoping that that consistency continues and then obviously wishing all the goodwill wishes to Grayson Griner who had the injury um, that he sustained in the Dominican that pulled him out of of action over there so we're hoping that everything heals up for him quickly too so yeah um, baseball is not done baseball has not died we are we're still playing and there's some fun things to keep an eye on yep the road road to the show never ends yeah i actually um you, you know daniel norris was you know it, it, it kind of feels like and i've i've talked to him here here or there just just via chat and it does feel like you know he's he's he just needs the reps you know he um he's maybe got into a few kind of bad habits dealing with, you know, that groin injury that really kind of lingered and hindered him for, you know, a solid year. So just getting those reps in there. um, It sounds like he's seeing his velocity start to to tick back up a little bit. And um, if he can get that back and and just stay healthy, the Tigers are going to, going to have a very, very nice pitcher on their hands next year. So we all need to, yep. All just need to cross our fingers and hope that can happen. (laughs) Sending sending good vibes to Daniel Norris. to do that. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Um, you know, we really appreciate you coming on. You know, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll look to uh, have Emily back on, you know, preseason, if not before, um, we'll, when we get to uh, the winter months and we're all freezing to death and, and really looking forward to spring training getting here. So, yep. And as usual, yep, I'll, uh, I'll be talking to you on Twitter and really, really appreciate you coming on. Thanks a lot for coming on and uh, yeah, sharing your experiences out in Arizona and kind of catching us up on what's been going on around the system. Yeah, absolutely. Always a pleasure, my friend. All right. Everybody go out there. And if you're not an athletic subscriber, you're failing. And Emily has a really, really nice piece up um, right at the moment that just came out today on the Arizona Fall League. Um, There's more details on some of the stuff we talked about and some of the players that we talked about. So go get yourself that. And we will see you all soon. Thanks a lot. Have a good night.